And uh, great Christians always live with the understanding that Jesus could come at any moment. And he's coming back. The imminent return of Christ is something that the devil does not want you to have on your mind. But it is something that God wants us to call. He calls it the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. I hope that uh, you are thinking about the coming of Christ, anticipating his coming. It's a great truth there. Acts chapter 21, and I know how many were not in the service this morning. Would you raise your hand? Hold it up high. Okay, it's unbelievable, and I seem like it's almost two different groups sometimes, from morning to evening. And this morning I started a message and, and began a little bit of explaining where we were at this stage of Acts chapter 21. It's been 2018 and 20 years since the church started. So there's been a lot of time that's gone by. The apostles are now gone out into the world or gone into eternity. Um, many of them are not. They're not there at the church now. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who shared the same mother but uh, had a different father, obviously. Joseph was his father. He is now the residing pastor, seems to be spearheading the church at Jerusalem. Has other leaders around him. The Bible calls them elders, not the apostles, but elders. And so now time has gone by. During this time, of course, since Pentecost it took place, and then Paul, Saul becoming the, the, uh, and the uh, adversary to the local church there in Jerusalem, especially and anywhere that the name of Christ would be named, he is now converted. Acts chapter 9, he comes to know Christ, meets him face to face, and now he becomes the champion for the Lord. It wasn't right away. And uh, all of us have to understand, I think uh, it's sometimes a, a head-scratcher, but Paul did not go from being Saul, the killer of Christians, the next day to being a worldwide evangelist. Um, I believe that the Bible teaches that he, was, uh, he spent a little time in Damascus. Then he went to try to go back to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the Spirit of God told him, uh, while he was there in Jerusalem, you can't stay here. They are not going to receive you. So he goes back to Tarshish. That's his hometown. That's where he was raised as a child before he came to train at the feet of Gamaliel there in Jerusalem. And he spent several years there. Maybe as many as uh, all together in his three years in Arabia with the Lord Jesus Christ, being instructed by the Lord personally, according to the book of Galatians. So it may have been as much as 10 years before he did uh, his work in Antioch. He was in Antioch, maybe many believe, between two, three, four years in Antioch teaching and working in that church, which is an international church outside, uh, of course, several hundred miles, a couple hundred miles north of Jerusalem. Antioch was an international city. That's where Christians were first called Christians, there in that city of Antioch. But from there, he was called out uh, to be a missionary. The Holy Spirit of God set aside he and Barnabas, the two teachers, to go out into the world abroad, outside the region, to be the uh, vessel of God to reach the Gentile world during that season. He went on three missionary journeys. The first one, a little bit shorter, 1,400 miles total. The second one, the longest, it looks like 2,800 miles in length. And those who added that up, I didn't add it up, I just read that. And then the third one, 2,700 miles, but a lot, of, a lot of winding back and forth, winning people to Christ, establishing churches, but primarily training servants of Christ. By the way, I think that is one of the major needs of missions today is we need to learn to train others to preach the gospel. I'm glad I go to a church that has Hiles Anderson College. It's not the easiest thing to have. A church would be a little easier if we didn't have that to some extent. 
because of the challenges, the financial ch- challenges, the, the, the thing there, Hammond Bible Institute, the reason we have, the reason we have Hammond Baptist, City Baptist, uh, they're all training organisms of this work to try to help develop new, new servants of Christ. And by the way, if you go to any of those schools, I hope that's inside of you. Uh, you're not going there just to get the uh, three R's. You're there to be trained to serve the Lord. And everybody ought to be trained somebody. If you're, if you're a CDL driver, help, help train somebody else. To be, you put that inside of them. Wouldn't it be wonderful to take hundreds of people to and from church every year? If you work in the, if you work in the nursery, you're a Sunday school teacher. Whatever you do, if you're a soul winner, train others to do the same thing. Uh, work at that. Say, God, please give me someone and help me to be purposeful, inspiring, encouraging, edifying, and exhorting others in the work of the Lord. Well, the Apostle Paul was definitely that. Wherever he went, he tried, and he told Timothy and told Titus, I want you to ordain elders in every city. He said, you've got to develop people. Uh, In both of those books, 1 Timothy and in Titus, he told them, here are the qualifications of pastors. He wasn't telling that so Titus and Timothy would know what to do. He told them that because these are the kind of men who will become pastors, who can pastor people. These are the kind of men who will be be deacons and deacons' wives who will help their pastors. This is what you're looking for. These are the people you can select from. And by the way, all of us ought to work hard to be eligible to whatever God wants us to be. And uh, so I'll never be a pastor. Well, we'll be qualified to be one. Be qualified to be one. Well, I'm not going to sure I'll ever do this. Well, just ask God to use you in your, in your realm. And we're going to talk about that this evening. Well, the Apostle Paul now has finished his third missionary journey, and he finds his way back. He comes back in to the Jerusalem area, and there's a man named Nason who is an elderly disciple who has been, he's older, but he has some money, obviously. He decides to take care of his lodging while he's in the area. I think it's interesting the Holy Spirit of God chose to put that in the Bible. An older saint who probably didn't have a lot of energy, but he had a little bit more money than the rest of them, and he said, you know what I can do? I can provide the lodging. Stay with me. And you take, I'll take care of you. And no doubt, he took care of the meals and the lodging for the Apostle Paul. What a great blessing that was. And I thank God for people in this room who use their assets. And all of us need to decide. And I don't say this to be critical. Uh, I tell you, I think all of us need to decide, when is enough enough? How much money do you need? How much do you need? How much are you going to say? How much are you going to learn to give? Some of us in our younger lives, we need every bit we got. As time goes on, God gives you a little bit more. You decide, myself, be careful that you don't try to get so much and save so much. Learn to be a, a, a channel and not a bucket. Learn to be a funnel and not a can. Say, God, what do you want me to do? Teach me. It's your money anyway. I belong to you. My, my, my possessions belong to you. But we oftentimes want to find security in what we have. There is wisdom and there's prudence, and I don't discount that. I think you guys understand the Bible says there's oil and treasure to be desired in the dwelling of a wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. It's foolish to spend all you have. There needs to be places for savings. But I also think the more we save, oftentimes the more our mind thinks about we're saving. The more we put away for a future, we often just keep thinking about that rather than what God's purposes are for today. And I believe the Lord Jesus shared that, shared that with us. Lay it for yourselves, treasures in heaven. Don't lay for yourselves treasures on earth where everything on this earth is going to rust, it's going to corrode, it's going to be corrupted, or it's going to be consumed, or it can be captured or stolen away from you. He said, make sure you put your treasures in a place that is secure without FDIC approval. 
okay? And where it's a secured heaven and God's taking care of it. And it's very important we understand to live open-handed, open-hearted, and let God help us with that. But I, I'm glad that the Holy Spirit has said about this man, uh, an older disciple who'd been saved for a long time, he said, look, I'll take care of your lodging while you're here. While he was there, he brought in those seven men. And by the way, it wasn't probably an easy thing. He brought in Sopater and Segundus and, and Trophimus and Timothy and all these guys coming from these Gentile uh, cities in Macedonia and in, in Greece and in Asia. And they all show up with Paul. I think he's very excited. He's been warned of the Lord. He's been warned of the Holy Spirit. He's been warned of people and been warned of Agabus said, if you go you're going to be in trouble. And he pushes through, and it's debatable whether he should have gone and how the book of Acts would be different if he had not gone. I don't know. But nonetheless, he continues on, and he makes his way and pushes through all of the obstacles and brings the men. He's heart. He's, he wants to get there where all the Jewish men or many of the Jewish men from the world around are there when he shows up. I'm sure he has thoughts of grandeur, opportunities to be able to share the gospel and to preach one more time. But he knows his people. He has a heart that's broken for them, but he shows up. And, but he makes his way and said the brethren were glad to receive him. Then he got an audience with James, the pastor, got an audience with the elders there and told them all that God had done and gave them testimonies of how that, that thousands and thousands of people the world around had come to know Christ, giving a missionary report. And the Bible says that they received it. They were glad. They rejoiced. Just like we rejoice listening tonight with our missionary report. I rejoice. Just thinking, well, that's great. Our new church started. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. They rejoiced. However, maybe they didn't want to riot. Maybe they had just weakened. 20 years. The church now has sustained a lot of challenges. Maybe had a smooth time. Maybe they didn't want another, another problem. It was the feast, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Passover had just taken place. And, and maybe just in one person, I said, you know what, we, gotta, we do have a problem, Paul. He said, there's, there's guys here that know you, and they know what you've taught, and they know what you've done. And uh, he said, we, we already know about what we said about the Gentiles. We were there at the council in chapter 15 of Acts. But he said, there's some guys here that's going to cause some problems. And so here's our idea. We've got four men who have toes chosen to take, and there have been a, they've taken a Nazarite vow. They're going to finish it. And they let their hair grow because it was an embarrassment to them. By the way, young men that have long hair, the Bible says it's a shame unto you. And that's why the, the Nazarites, when they would grow their hair, it wasn't, it wasn't a prideful thing. It was an embarrassment to them. People said, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's, that should be an embarrassment. And, and, but they did it to, for the Lord. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Of course, Samson was a Nazarite from his birth. Some other folks just chose to take a Nazarite vow for a while. With they, would not, they would not touch a dead body. They would not uh, drink anything from a vine. There were other rules that would, they, would, they would go through to make that vow. It says, four guys, they've done that. Why don't you join them? That way you can kind of go incognito here and you'll show those people who are going to be critical of you that you're trying to walk the Jewish Judaism walk. And to our surprise, to my surprise, Paul did it. Paul acquiesced. I think he could have said, are you crazy? I'm not, I'm not doing that. But he listened to the church leadership and he did it. He went and shaved his head along with them. He put on a uh, all the, he cleansed it, all the purifying, probably wore white. 
as he went about the worship of the week and the, and the Pentecost and all the people that would gather to the temple. But while he was there on the seventh day, it looks like, Asian Jews, Jews from Asia, which had given him a hard time in Ephesus, they knew Trophimus. Trophimus was from Ephesus. He was an Ephesian. And uh, he's traveling with these Greek guys. He's traveling with these folks, and, and they know him. And they gave him a hard time when he was in the city, and they saw him again. And uh, while he's in the temple, we remember what happened. And I can direct your attention. Let's look back at the scriptures if we can, so you can see it for those of you who weren't here this morning. But verse number 27, and when the seven days were almost ended, so he is now with these other four men and fulfilling their, their Nazarite vow, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on them, crying out, men of Israel, help, for this is the man that uh, teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law. And this place is certain he did not do that. But further, he had brought Greeks also into the temple, and he had not done that. As Paul both uh, says that this is not true, and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before of him in the city Trophimus, that was one of his, uh, one of his young converts that with, with him from the Ephesian, whom they had supposed had thought to themselves that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. I almost brought this to you just to kind of see it. But, uh, of course, if, if there were as many, and some historians believe there may have been a million, two million Jewish men that descended upon Jerusalem for this time. But the Temple Mount, those of you who have been there, it's, it's a large, and there's a, there's a center part, and then there's, a, there's an outward court. But all these folks are there, and now they get him, but they, they, they're not going, they just take him out initially from the court to take him the outside to, to hurt him and to, to, to kill him on the outside, not on the day when doing on temple grounds. So they, they said, help, let's get this guy out of here. This is the guy. And they began to land accusations. Remember this, who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan. And of course, Paul found that out real quickly whenever he was arrested by the Lord. And you know, dear friends, I think we ought to be very careful to be critical of other people especially if they name the name of Christ. And, and you know, you're not everybody crosses their T's and dots their I's the same way that I do or you do. But uh, to his own master, let them stand or fall. I think you ought to be very careful. Sometimes we have loose lips. We're critical. We don't understand somebody. We, do, we hear something someplace and we blab it. We say something we shouldn't say. And oftentimes we do it against people that are... Um, that are Christians. They're our brothers. You're going to spend eternity with them. And I think, I think it bothers the Lord. And I think it hurts our testimony. There are some things just better left unsaid. But here, these, some of these Jews, according to, to Pastor James, they're believing Jews. And yet they're caught up in this frenzy against a man who really was an, a man among men. And they get him and bring him back, they bring him outside, and they begin to beat him. And I can only imagine what he's going through, the, the pulling him back and forth and punching him in the head and kidney punches and kicking him and throwing him down and kicking him again as you're trying to get him out of this place to be able to hurt him and eventually take his life. Of course, we know this, that because of the ruckus, the chief 
the chief of security there in, uh, in Jerusalem, the chief captain. His name is Elias, and he, uh, he comes and with his soldiers, and when they see the police activity come, they back off. And I don't know exactly what they found Paul doing, but uh, they said, okay, what, what do you got here? And one guy said something else. Another person said something else, and they, none of it made sense to them, but they felt like they, maybe he had done something real criminally wrong. As a matter of fact, the man who arrested him thought he was an Egyptian who was known for his vigilante with 4,000 murderers that he had took and was in charge of and thought he had maybe a real hardened criminal. But he didn't understand what was going on, but thank God. And I think, though, don't you think God was involved in that whole situation? Protecting his life and sparing him. You know, and that all brouhaha, the book of Ephesians was there. The book of Romans was there. Philemon was there. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. So many books of the Bible we wouldn't have if God would allowed him to leave leave eternity right then. So many things in his future. I love the rest of the book of Acts. So many things that are just miraculous and sweet that God did from him. But no doubt it wasn't the chief captains and he was just a pawn on the board. But he came in at the time and on his way up, he said, well, let's just take him, take him out, get him away from these people. They're going to kill him. And while he's going up on the stairwell, he comes up there and now all the people, no doubt, making noise, and they're saying away with him. Remember where we heard that before? 20 years before, they had said that about Jesus. Now they're saying it about his, his servant. They're screaming out, away with him, kill him, crucify him, kill him, kill him. And when he gets up to the top, and he's got soldiers carrying him just to protect him from being beaten anymore, he gets up there and he says to the chief captain, do, do, can I have a word with you? He said, what, you can speak Greek? He said, I thought you were Egyptian. He goes, no, no. I'm from no regular city. I'm from Tarshish. It was a very famous town in, in the Cilicia region. He said, no, I'm from Tarshish. I was raised there. He said, I'm, from, I'm a Jew, but I'm from no mean city because this, this, these are my people. He said, do you mind if I say something to them? And, of course, he said, yeah, you can do it. And the silence of people put his hand up. And chapter 22 will find out what he says. It's a very powerful message. And you can see the pathos in his voice and his heart wanting to convey his love for the people. He uses the fact that he's a Jew. He uses the fact that everybody there that was here 20 years ago, you remember where I was. You know who I was. And then I met face to face with Jesus. And then Ananias, a devout Jew and a believer, he's the one who came to me. He uses this and shows them that. Until he comes to one word, the word Gentile. When he comes to the word Gentile, as soon as he said Gentile, and of course he's speaking in the Hebrew tongue, the chief, the chief captain, the police chief that has him there and standing and gave him a chance to talk, he doesn't understand a thing he's saying. He, speak, he speaks Greek, this guy's speaking Hebrew, and he's talking to Jewish men. And they listen, I don't know exactly what the faces would have been like that day. I'm sure some of them just like, ah, some of them probably interested in trying to figure out what he's trying to say. Thousands of Jewish men get to hear the, the story of Paul's conversion. Until he says the word Gentile, when he says the word Gentile, that God has called me to the Gentiles, immediately coats come off. Muscles flex, dirt gets pulled up, thrown at him, all in the air, starts screaming and hollering, and the captain is mad. He's like, what did you say? What happened? What, what, there was everyone listened so good, and now all of a sudden, what did you say wrong? And so he actually took him and arrested him and getting ready to get the, going to beat him. 
And you can read the rest of it in chapter 22. Have you noticed I'm teasing you a little bit? I hope you'll read it. It's a great chapter of God's Word. But tonight I want to talk to you about three things in the story. One, we spoke about this morning, that's the mother church. This great church of Jerusalem that Paul had visited many times, sometimes to be a blessing, sometimes to bring money to, sometimes to work out problems with the Gentile believers. But now it seems to me like they weren't as strong as they needed to be. A time when they should have stepped up, they stepped back. A time they should have stood against the worlds and against the the Judaisms that they knew that were wrong. The Judaizers, they they knew that God had, they had heard it a whole, their whole, they had seen it. They rebelled against it when Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria, but the disciples learned it. They had a hard time when Peter came back from Cornelius, and they had a hard time when the Samaritan people began to get saved and get baptized and begin to follow the Lord. It bothered them. They had a hard time when Paul came back, and they said, look, if you're going to win all these Gentiles, you tell them they have to switch over to Judaism. They have to keep the the, the laws of the Old Testament. Paul told them, he said, no, that's not going to work. You've got to figure out something. And they did figure out something. They, did number, number, they said three things. Don't be offensive to God. Don't, eat, don't drink blood. And don't eat things that are strangled. Because God has a, a sacredness about the blood. Don't offend your brothers and sisters that are weaker than you by eating food or meats that have been offered to idols. They're dumb idols. They don't mean anything. But if it offends your brother, don't do it. Don't offend God. Don't offend others. And then don't offend yourself by being a fornicator. Abstain from fornication. Every sin that a man or a woman does is without the body, but the sin of fornication messes with you, your life, your potential, your future. Nothing destroys a human being quite like immorality does. And if you think you can play with porn and get away with it, you're wrong. If you can think you can text with someone you shouldn't text or meet someone you shouldn't meet or do a little separate separate little email to communicate with someone who's not your, your spouse... In the, in the bounds of marriage, we're all good. If you want to try it outside of marriage, the Bible says we're whoremongers and fornicators. And it will offend ourselves. It'll hurt you. It, there's never been a man to get by with it. There's never been a woman to ever get by with it without, without grave results. He said, don't, don't do it. Don't offend God. Don't offend others. And don't offend yourself. He said, that's all we were told the Gentile believers to do. And they rehearsed that with Paul. It's interesting, the whole situation... But the mother church, instead of protecting this valuable asset, this God's man, that had come with nothing but goodwill, bringing a pile of cash, bringing the testimonies of Gentile converts, bringing encouragement, instead of of embracing him and protecting him, they advised him to get out there like a lamb before slaughter. Sad to me. But I think oftentimes Christians in our, in our churches, and this pastor is not an exempt from that, we can oftentimes get very weakened in our, in our stance. There are things that we, we tolerate in our life now we would have never done 10 years ago. There are things that we look on our feeds and our social media that we would, we would have blushed to look at 10, 15 years ago. There are language that comes out of our mouth we would have never said. There are places that we would have never gone that we go now with no no blush. There are things that that we kind of get used to the dark. And I think the church had kind of gotten this way. 
They didn't have an ability to even protest, much less be an influence. They just wanted to get along to get along. And I tell you, I don't, I don't like this, but I think we have to learn to stand and we have to learn to fight. So what do wanna, who do you want to fight? Pastor, I love that part. I just now woke up. Fight you. <laughs> fight your own flesh. Fight your own selfishness. Fight your own worldliness. Your own desires to fight the bitterness. Fight the unforgiveness. Fight the callousness that we feel and the apathy that we feel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When does it bother you that you haven't seen someone saved in a while? When does it bother you that you haven't seen someone baptized that you've led to Christ? Does that get on your nerves at all? There'll be years where someone say, well, you know, I got to lead three people to the Lord. We got to see someone baptized. I got to lead seven people to the Lord. That's wonderful. When's, when's, when's that going to bother you again? I think we can just kind of get along to get along. Man, the church is probably, it's going. And uh, yet it's become less and less stringent, less and less effective. There's no protest. There's no power. There's a proclivity to just to, just to get along. You know, I, I find myself getting in that road sometimes, and I hate it. I hate it for God. God has given this pastor so much, and he's given you so much. There's so much he's been given, given to us, and yet the, the mother church had weakened to the place that it couldn't make a good decision in the face of, of opposition and problems. The mother church, the mob, the group of people, there's some believing. Some of these Jews were not uh, hardened Judaizers without Christ. Some of them had Christ. And they found themselves in a, in a pool of prejudice. You know, there's very few things that probably aggravate God more than being a respecter of persons. Because what's at the core of prejudice? You can say another word with P. What is it? Pride. They felt like they were a little higher in God's economy than the rest of the world, and especially the Gentile world. I believe that's inside of me, too. I believe that's inside of you. And we've got some issues there. Read, I read this week the book of James in chapter number 2. And when you read, he said, Brethren, don't you know the Lord of glory, who at his core is not a respecter of persons? Learning to love everyone and learning to have a heart for God for everybody is extremely important. We gravitate to people we like or they're like us and we're okay with them. Truth of the matter is, God loves the world. People that aren't raised like you were raised or didn't have the same background or don't have the same economic background that you might have, the wonderful, wonderful thing is to dig deep into the, law, into the Word of God and, and be controlled by the Spirit of God so you can be equitable with others. It's the kind of God we have. We want to be like Him. We find this, this, this mob, they were prejudiced. They thought they were better than the rest of the world. Because when they came out with one word, Gentiles, that was it. Speech was over. Coats came off. Dust starts flying. Insults and cursing start coming out. They have no idea what just happened, but it, it happened because of prejudice. I feel like this is something we need to deal with. A lukewarmness that we have as Christians and, and a church. And that means me and that means you. Number two, a prejudice. Number three, I want you to talk, let's talk just for a second in closing about the man. What do we find about the Apostle Paul? I don't know what your opinion is, but I tell you, I cannot but get amazed every time I read about his life. 
when I read his letters and how that Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Christ, it just keeps coming up over and over again. You can't hardly read three verses where he doesn't mention God or Christ or the Lord. I wonder how many times you mention him and I mention him in a week's time. How many times do we text out J-E-S-U-S-C-H-R-I-S-T? How many times is that on our emails? How many times is that in our words, our conversation? How many times we see as a couple sitting there, what do you think God wants us to do? What's the scripture say? What would the Lord want us to do? Like the song we sang tonight, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. I wonder if it's a name that we say. What if we could add all of our text messages of this last week and find out how many times Jesus was mentioned? Hope it's never mentioned an oath. Or God, or the Lord. We talk about things we love, that's sometimes we don't talk about the Lord Jesus. Paul is deeply in love with the Lord. There's three things about him I want you to notice. Number one, I think his motive was his divine purpose. What did God ask him to do? He was motivated by his purpose. And that was to honor God and help others. That was to glorify God and to be good for others. And it's still your purpose too. I don't care if you're a man or a woman, old or young, your job is still to glorify God and do good for others, to honor the Lord and help somebody else. And if you're not doing that, you're wasting the breath God's given you. And if I'm not doing that, I'm doing the same thing. But this guy was motivated. His motivation was a divine purpose. He tried to figure out what God kept him on the planet to do and to do it. I think all of us need to, every, every once in a while, I, there's a famous pastor in our day who's got a purpose-driven thing, and I, I, I can't even bring myself to read a, a page of the book. It drives me crazy. But I do believe that we ought to fall in love with God's purpose. And remember this, Paul wrote this to the Roman church, chapter 8 of Romans. Some of you are maybe your favorite verse, and we know. We don't think, but we know. We don't hope, but we know. I think I want to sing that song sometime. I'll have to learn it again. But we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Boy, asking ourselves, and that's what sober means. When you find the, the word sober in the Bible so many times, it means with purpose. That means if you, it says younger women, you live sober. Older women, live sober. Older men, live sober. Younger men, live sober. What it means doesn't mean not drunk. It means with purpose. Remember what God put you on the planet to do. And you may not be able to do that right now for your long trajectory, but you can do what God wants you to do today. You need to really get a, get a hold. And the thing that, that beautiful uh, thing that, that, that I admire so much about the man is that he was purpose in his heart to divinely do what God wanted to do. I want that for all of us. Whatever God puts you in plan to young man, don't have your own plan. There's a way that seemeth right to the man, but they're in the end of the ways of death. Hey, mom and dad, want what God has for your kids. Don't try to plan it out for them. I mean, you provide the tools. You train them up in the way they should go. There's no doubt about that. And, and every, every, every child is different. But boy, you ought to love them. And you ought to hope that God will do his best for their life. Divine purpose. Number two, I love the Apostle Paul for another reason. And this is his means. He used his skill set, his language, his citizenship, whatever he had to use, you saw that he pulled out of his bag. He got his whole lifetime putting things in his tool bag that he would use for the glory of God. 
You know, I, I have a tool bag, and you have a tool bag. Some of you speak two languages. Are you using your skill set for the Lord? Some of you have a passport. Are you using your passport for the Lord? Some of us, we couldn't get a passport if we wanted one. We couldn't get a visa, but you could. Some of us, we can't, you know, if we got, got a job, we get, we get a $7 an hour job. When you go get a job, you get a $37 job. You just know how to turn a buck. It's not even you. It's, it's what God made you to do. People have, people have packed your lunch your whole life. You didn't teach yourself how to read. You didn't teach yourself the math skills. But for the grace of God, you wouldn't be able to find your mouth this evening to feed it. God's given you all that. You know, I think about Apostle Paul. He was born in Tarshish, was raised in, Tar in a Greek city until he's about 13 years old. And then he moves to Jerusalem. And he's instructed by Gamaliel, one of the most famous Jewish teachers. You think that was on purpose? I think so. It got him open doors wherever he went in synagogues around the world. He'd walk in there and say, well, who are you? I'm, I'm Paul. And, and, uh, or he'd say Saul because that was his Jewish name probably. Paul was his Gentile name. He'd say, well, you know, where, where, where are you from? He says, yeah, I was born in Tarshish, but I was raised in, in Jerusalem. I, well, I see you here at the, at the synagogue, you know. Do you have any schooling? He goes, yeah, well, I did school a little while. What'd you do? I went with Gamaliel's school. Gamaliel. Oh, well, then you can speak today. Would you speak today? Open doors. Wherever he'd go, he used what, what God, he didn't, he didn't enroll himself in the school of Gamaliel. His dad did. He's 13 years old. The things that he had, tent making, learning how to use his hands. He used that in some places. His citizenship. We'll find that, that uh, he used that in Philippi. Another time, he took a beating without even saying a word. This, this chapter 22, he's going to be arrested, and they're getting ready to get some more information out of him. And he says, hey, you, can you do this to a Roman citizen? He goes, are you a Roman citizen? I said, yep, I am. He goes, oh, good night. Hang on, we're coming back. Hey, this guy's Roman. Don't hit him. And so he goes, I was scared. I even put handcuffs on him. We don't even have any information about what he did wrong. And he used his Roman citizenship. You know, it's a beautiful thing about the Apostle Paul not only was he devoted to God's divine purpose, he used what he had to propagate the gospel. Think about George Zaris owning four radio stations, or how many did you own? Seven, 10, 25, 75? How many radio stations at one time? Do you remember? Five at one time, and his own multiple others. You know, whenever it came time to CRI to get the, get the gospel on radios, he doesn't have a radio station now, but he now gets it all over the world. You know, he did. He just used what God made him good at. He gave, the, he, he, whatever, the, I don't think he probably said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a radio station owner. He just happened to have that, and he used that skill. You know, Ed, Ed, Eddie Wilson, unbelievable. He could talk the paint off the walls. He could tell you, make you, all, make you feel feelings of grandeur. Just listen to him for a few moments. You know, to think that he has a heart to get media, use media to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's using what God gave him. Whatever God gives you, decide, Lord, help me not to miss using every tool you give me in my life. Some of you might have accounting things, or you might have, you might have just gifts of, of attracting people, or I don't know, drive a bus, find out, whatever it is. You know, I, I didn't, I just, 
there was a need when I was 21, and I got a CDL. And I just kept it. I just decided to keep, keep my CDL for these 33 years and just drive a bus. If that, if that can be helpful to God, that's great. I didn't. I, I, I paid for it to, to get my CDL, but I, and I paid the, uh, every time we have to do the, the physical and take the drug test or whatever you have to do. But the truth matters, that's, that's nothing if I have a chance to help people. Whatever tool God's given you, can you clean? Clean good. Can you do something that, 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 that you can look around and say, you know what, well, God, what did you make me to do? And what did you make me good at? And what could I use? You don't have to go around and flaunt it, but you can find something. And I find that we use things that God's given us. Some of you, you've got gifts and you're not using them. You know it and God knows it. I have nobody in mind. But there are things that are holes in the, in the ministry of the Lord that could be filled if you would use the tools God's given you in your life. Some of you can communicate. Some of you can turn a buck. And there's things you could do, but you're not doing them. Your ceiling of commitment is low. I love this about Apostle Paul. Whatever God gave him, he used it for his glory. But I love the last thing that comes to my mind about Apostle Paul. is not only his method, or excuse me, his motivation and his means, but his method was his testimony. God had changed him. And he had had experience with God, and that experience made him very different to the world abroad. And you know young people and older people alike, one thing you want to do in your life, if you're saved, you ought to live it out. If you have a testimony for Christ, you ought to be as the best Christian you can be. Apostle Paul, I think the thing that made him the most vibrant servant of Christ, there may be many things you may disagree with me, but he would say this constantly, my conscience is clean before God and before others. He lived with a clean conscience. His testimony was pure. His purpose was obvious, whatever God wanted me to do. He found that whatever tools God had given him, he used them. You single moms, God can do something for you, and he can use the strength that you have to raise kids. Single dads, married. Grandpa, grandma, hey, listen, whatever you do, use the tools God's given you, and then make sure your testimony is obvious. This world doesn't need another cheap imitation of what it has out there. It needs you and me on our best day before a God in heaven with a clean conscience between God and with other people. And listen, we're, we're whistling the wind if we think we can be right with God and a light to the world if we're wrong with someone else. If you think you're going to live a holy life on a diet of HBO and Cinemax and every flick that comes along, if you think that you can keep a, you're going to have a, you're going to have a bright, shining light and keep your music that you know that's, that's conflicting with the Holy Spirit, you're, you're wrong. You think you're going to keep the same, the same things and just, I'm just going to live my life and everybody's, no, you're not. He had a vibrant experience with Jesus and it never left him the same. Three times in our Bible, it's recorded for us. And I think maybe three and a half times. I think Paul told his testimony wherever he went. When's the last time you told yours? When's the last time we told others about what God had done? And people can even see there's something very different about that girl. There's something different about that man. I don't know what it is. It ought to be a vibrant testimony for the Lord. The mother church weakened. The mob, prejudice, the man, 
divinely motivated by what God called him to do, willing to use what God made him good at, whatever tool God gave him, and then motivated to have a life that is pure and godly and real. May God, may the world see that same thing in me and you tonight. Let's pray together. Can